Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. If you want to go ahead and take your Bibles out, we'll jump right in. So if you want to take your Bibles out and flip open to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. As you're doing that, a quick reminder to you that we are in a new series as a church that we'll be kind of walking through throughout the fall. And this series is called A Glorious Bride, the local church's importance to the world. And so we're, we're kind of on this journey together as a church of really wrestling together with what the local church is, what the local church is for. Uh, we often talk, you know, even for us as a church, uh, we have people coming from so many different backgrounds in church, and we all have different ideas about church. And this series gives us an opportunity to, uh, to really all look to get on the same page, to look at the scriptures, to see what they have to say about what it is to be the church. And so we pray uh, to that end that this would be a great unifying uh, series for us as a church, uh, that it would challenge us, that it would grow us, um, and that God would be honored through it. And so Ephesians chapter 2, today the topic before us is a church for all people. A church for all people. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through 22. Just a short time ago, I guess it was just about a year ago, we were in this passage as well, so you can always go back and listen to that sermon to supplement what we have this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, let's read that. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God, we ask that you would open our minds, make our hearts receptive this morning to your word, Lord, for, to what you have to say to us through it. God, we just we want to be teachable people. We want to be people who never feel as if we have arrived in our knowledge of you and of your word, God. And so make us that this morning, Lord. 
And God, form us as a people by your word and by this specific word that we have this morning. We love you, Father. We thank you for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, each, each Sunday morning, we all enter through the same door at the back, you may have noticed. You used to have multiple doors. We've kind of confined it to the one single door. And, and as I reflected even on that, I would say as you do this each Sunday, as you enter through this one door, I want you to consider a theological truth that this very act in itself conveys. I don't know if you had a chance this past week to read chapter 2 in the book that we have to go along with this series, but if you did, you might remember Ray Ortland's words in that chapter. In the church in Nashville, Tennessee, where he formerly served as a lead pastor, they have intentionally painted the entrance doors to their sanctuary red. And they've done this for a very specific purpose. This, this has been done to communicate one of the most profound and one of the most enduring truths of the gospel. It's this truth. It's that each of us enters into the church each of us enters into the family of God only by and only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The red of the doors that they paint at that church, it symbolizes and it serves as a reminder to all who enter that they have done nothing to make their acceptance into the church family possible. There is nothing in any one of us that makes us a better candidate to be a Christian than the next person. It is not the color of our skin. It is not the size of our checking accounts. It is not our background or our upbringing. We do not get to appeal to any of these things to get us into the church. Our one and only appeal can be made to the blood of Jesus Christ. And I love that idea of painting the doors red. Our doors here are not painted red, and they, they probably never will be um, unless we go rogue and you guys want to do that, but then we'd have to buy new doors and that would creep into the budget and it's just the whole thing. But nevertheless, we enter through this one door, and that in itself serves as a symbol and a reminder to us as well that we enter through the one door, this one door being by way of Jesus alone. And really, when we think about the importance of this idea, of the entering through the one door, of entering through the red door, I don't think we can overstate the importance of understanding this. Because nothing is going to short-circuit pride and superiority in our lives quicker than seeing this. You know, I think it could be said that, that every seed of, of ethnic superiority in the church, every seed of elitism in the church, every stain of racism or classism within the church could be traced back to, to missing, to ignoring, or to diminishing that very truth. We enter through the single red door, Jesus and his shed blood alone. And I say all of this because it's really a way of saying that we are a church for all people. 
It's really a way of saying that the doors of the church swing wide open to people from all backgrounds, to people from all ethnicities, to people from all socioeconomic statuses. Because if we enter by the way of Jesus, then what that means is that none of our identity markers gives us an advantage in entering. All are welcome in. And this is what Ephesians 2 shows us. In Ephesians 2 here, we see that the cross of Jesus Christ makes us a church for all people. We see that it does this because it stands as evidence that all people are in need of redemption, all people in need of reconciliation. And the cross of Jesus Christ, it makes us a church for all people because it secures our reconciliation with God and our reconciliation with each other. Let's look at that. Look at verses 11 and 12 again with me. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, here in 11, Paul is transitioning from that incredible paragraph on the mercy and the love and the grace of God and salvation. And he transitions from that to this matter of the gospel being for all people. And he does this by driving down on an issue that's beginning to crop up in the early church at that time. As the message of the gospel is being preached, both Jews and Gentiles, that is these non-Jewish people, are beginning to respond in faith to the gospel, beginning to see their need for a savior. And these, ne- these new converts, they're beginning to gather in local churches. And you can look in, in the book of Acts to see that, that things are not always so chummy between these new groups that have been gathered together in these local churches. There's a lot of confusion about this new arrangement. Are these Jewish converts, are they in some way superior to the, Jewish, to the Gentile converts? Are these Gentile converts second-class citizens within the church? Are they in some way at disadvantage to the Jewish converts? And Paul, here in 11 through 12, he says, it's true that you Gentiles were once ignorant of God's promises. But when you look back at verse 1 in chapter 2, what you can see there is that even the Jewish people's familiarity with the covenant promises, it did not keep them from also being spiritually dead. Yes, they knew of the coming Messiah. They knew more than the Gentiles, but they were still spiritually dead. In the early part of, part of chapter 2, Paul uses this language of all. He uses this language of we And it's showing that all people are in need of redemption and of reconciliation. All people were dead in their sins and trespasses. You know, a a corpse in a silk-lined mahogany casket is just as lifeless as one in a plywood casket. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. They were spiritually dead. And, And truly understanding the gospel that we so often talk about here, truly understanding it down to its bedrock, 
It means understanding that no one in the shadow of the cross is superior to another. No one is superior. There is ultimately no high grounds at the foot of the cross. The ground there has been leveled. No one gets to boast at the base of the cross. The Jews here, they don't get to boast that they knew the promises. And we today, we don't get to boast in our salvation, which is a gift from God. And which means we certainly don't get to boast in any sort of ethnic or socioeconomic identity, any of these other markers of identity. Look at, look at verses 13 through 16 again. He transitions he brings in the but now of it all. He did the same thing in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there in verse 4. But in 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says there that we who were far off, strangers and aliens, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But we have to ask, brought near to what? Certainly we can see that it's that we've been brought near to God himself. We see that in verses one through 10. But the next verses show us that this being brought near is something that extends to other people as well. Paul is talking about how in the gospel, Gentiles, that is these non-Jews, they're being fully welcomed into the community of the church, being brought near to these Jewish believers. Christ, his blood, it brings peace with others as well. Ethnic Jews who have become Christians now get to worship alongside Gentiles whom they formerly would not have associated with. And how is this possible? It's possible by the power of the gospel, by what the blood of Jesus Christ has won. God has made peace between different ethnic identities possible. He has taken these two distinct groups, and in the church, it says he makes one new man. It's, it's been said about this idea of him making one new man, that he takes people from one race and people from another race, and he makes this third race where there's this new gospel identity that defines people first and foremost. Paul, he talks about this all throughout his ministry. In, in Galatians 3, 28, he writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the new gospel identity for each and every one of us. And this new gospel identity is something that transcends all other identity markers. It transcends our identity as white, as black, as Hispanic, as Asian, as rich, as poor. It's not that we dismiss any of those things. It is important to recognize the differences in our experiences and our identity markers 
So we don't dismiss those realities, but what we do is we see that our new identity marker is the thing that unites us across these lines of difference. Brian Loritz, he says that we have no hope of ethnic unity without this gospel identity. No hope of crossing lines of difference within the church if we do not first and foremost see this new gospel identity that we have in Jesus Christ. Being rooted in this new gospel identity, it's going to make us unified across lines of difference. It will make that possible. So this, this horizontal reconciliation, it's another way that we could talk about it. This, this unity in, divi- in diversity, it's ultimately, it's a blood-bought reality. Something that Jesus' blood has won from aliens and strangers to God and one another, to fellow citizens of the kingdom of God and members of the household of God. This distance between us and between us and God, it can only be traveled because Christ traveled up the hill at Calvary. Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor are waved into the church by the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is why we are a church for all people. Jesus Christ has made it so. And it's important to see that this is why partiality and and prejudice within the church is such an ugly thing. To see partiality and prejudice within the church is is to speak untruthfully about the gospel. James touches on this in chapter two of his epistle when he rebukes the the readers there for giving the seat of prominence in their gatherings, the seat of honor to the rich among them, and for pushing the poor among them onto the floor. He calls them out for making these distinctions based on socioeconomic identity markers. He says that this sort of way of relating to one another has no place in the church. And in fact, he goes so far as to call it something that, that we may not go so far, and, and yet we need to go so far in calling it, which is he calls it evil. He says there is something satanic about trying to roll back the reconciliation that Christ has won across these lines of difference. There's something about pushing fellow citizens of God's kingdom to the margins of the church that is opposed to God's very character. And this is an area of the church in which Satan has had a foothold for far too long. There's a well-documented history of the church's partial and and prejudiced practices, and these things should lead us to grieve. The gospel has often been distorted. God has often been dishonored and how we have failed to live in this new gospel identity. But we can see, too, that we don't have to be left to grieve without hope. As long as we still have breath as believers, we can step into the blood-bought reality of horizontal reconciliation within the church. We can step into that as long as we have breath. I want us to see, too, that, that being a church that does that, of being a church that steps into this horizontal reconciliation, a church that lives in that reality, a church that is for all people, 
It does, I think, at least four different things that I think are important to touch on. First, it's something that reflects God's heart and brings honor to his name. It's something that Jesus has accomplished. Jesus made us one. Jesus broke down the wall. Jesus killed the hostility. Jesus reconciled us together. He has done all of this, which is why God is glorified when his church lives in the blood-bought reality that Christ has purchased. When our churches reflect this sort of kind of kingdom diversity that God has ushered in and made possible, it brings honor to God. It reflects his character. Secondly, being a church for all people, it brings clarity and attention to what is of central importance in the church. The gospel, it shines brightly when local churches are made up of people from different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. When that's the case, we can look around on a Sunday morning and we can say, what, what in the world are we all doing together here this morning? What in the world has brought us all together here this morning? This motley crew of people from all backgrounds and walks of life. I remember a moment even uh, years ago and leading a small group where we were kind of covering this, this topic in our time together as a small group of being a church for all people. And we even got into the discussion of, of how this applies to age difference as well, how there's this intergenerational um, kind of the, the beauty of that in the church and uh, that Christ has brought together people of all ages and stages of life. And, and I just remember in that room being able to point out and, and kind of call out for, for all of us present that my relationship with, with one of the guys there in the room, it just made absolutely no sense unless the gospel of Jesus Christ had brought us together. This was a guy who was in his mid-50s. He had, I think, six kids. I can't even remember now because there were so many that were running around. Uh, he was a pharmaceutical salesman. He was a theater major in college. Everything about our, our stories and our backgrounds did not make any sense as to why we were in a room fellowshipping with one another. And, and that moment, it, it gave us this opportunity to say, it's the, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought us together, that has united us across all of these lines of difference that existed for us. It's this incredible moment where we get to realize that, that the transformative power of the gospel has invaded our hearts, has invaded our community. That's the thing that we have in common. Aliens and strangers being made citizens of the kingdom of God. And this clarity and attention is not only helpful to those who are within the church, though it is, but I think it also clearly puts the gospel on display to the world around us. Being a church that is for all people, it clarifies the gospel witness of the church. You know, in a, in a world that is so often divided by race and class, and even divided by all of these other identity markers of age and stage of life, the countercultural community of the church can make the gospel compelling to a non-Christian. I think it can lead the curious to ask the question, what is it that brings these disparate communities together? 
What is the center that holds these people together? It can't just be common interests or some tradition, and it definitely can't be ancestry. And so in that moment, the gospel is given the stage to speak from, and Jesus can be magnified through that. And then lastly, as far as uh, four things that the church for all people does, is that being a church for all people, it pulls the future into the present. It pulls the future into the present. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John there, he shares his vision of the throne room in heaven. And this is what he says. He, he says that he looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I think there are a few biblical visions that are more kind of chill-inducing than that one. This vision of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds gathered together, worshiping Jesus together. A diverse group of people unified around Jesus Christ. This future vision, it can be a present reality for us. It's something we talk often about as a church. It's something that we front even with our values as a church is that we want this, this future reality to be a present one for us as well. We want to strive to see that come to pass. We know that it will honor God. We know that it's what we will get to enjoy in heaven. And so we strive to, to have a taste of that now, even while we're here on earth. We believe that we don't have to settle for, for what the world so often uh, reflects back to us, which is monocultural, homogenous contexts and gatherings of people. We don't have to settle for being a, a monocultural, homogenous church. We can be people who step into the blood-bought reality that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. So how do we do that? How do we step into the blood-bought reality of the church as a place for all people? I think there's at least three things that, that we can see. It's under the, the headings of remembering, under the heading of reaching out, and of relishing. First, we remember our reconciliation with God. You who were dead in your sin have been made alive in Christ, and you now have peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2, it's really, it's, it is high-octane rocket fuel for our Christian gratitude and joy. Coming back to God's work in the gospel is something that will grow us in gratitude. It's something that will push back against pride in our life. And it's something that will ignite within us this passion to see the church as a place for all people. So we remember our reconciliation with God. Secondly, we reach out across lines of difference. It is very easy, you may feel this, it is very easy to settle into comfortable patterns of relating to others in the church. 
We can be kind of, I think at times, like, like patients who are uh, waiting for surgery. We, we kind of become anesthetized to our surroundings. It becomes uh, just a, a comfortable type of experience. We can really get enveloped in, in the warm blanket of church, and we can stop looking around to see who is still left out in the cold. You know, it's, it's good to find a church home where we feel the rest and the warmth of belonging. And it is just as good that we look around and we invite others into that experience. Tony Marita, in our book that we are kind of reading along with the series, he says, our proper response to the grace shown toward us in Christ is the extension of grace to others. He says, those who apply the gospel of grace deeply in their own hearts will be a welcoming, hospitable, grateful, generous, and joyful people. We can exercise what I would call this kind of gospel-infused hospitality, reaching out across lines of difference. We do that in response to God's reconciliation. We reach out, we welcome into the church people who are different from us. So consider how you might, in your own life, your own experience of relating to the church here, consider how you might sacrifice to reach out and welcome in across all of these lines of difference. There are so many that we could uh, articulate here, whether it's the, the lines of ethnic difference, of socioeconomic difference, of vocational difference, of age difference. In all of these differences, we have the opportunity to reach out across those lines. And so the, the first small step for you can be walking up and introducing yourself to someone whom you might not regularly affiliate with on a Sunday morning. Maybe someone who's not a part of your normal group of folks that you gather with and talk with on a Sunday morning. We get to step into this, this blood-bought reality of the church, being one for people of all different backgrounds. And we can do that through reaching out and through welcoming in. So we remember our reconciliation. We reach out across lines of difference. And then lastly, we relish our reconciliation with one another. Christ, Paul says, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has made us one new man in the church. Enjoy this. Enjoy Christ's accomplishment. Enjoy the company of your brothers and sisters in Christ who look differently than you, who talk differently than you, who see the world differently than you. Don't lose sight of how profound peace across these lines of difference truly is. And removing hostility across these lines of difference and making us this one new man in Jesus Christ, God does what the world cannot God brings unity in the church. He brings unity across these lines of difference. And so why do we want to be a church for all people? Simply put, we want to be a church for all people because this reflects the heart of God. The God that we worship has shown divine hospitality by welcoming people from all ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, tribes, nations, and languages into his kingdom, into the church. The single red door swings wide open 
And so let us, as a church, let us increasingly be a church that steps into this blood-bought reality of a church for all people. Let's pray. God, we first and foremost praise your name. God, you and your wisdom and your creativity, Lord, have created people of all shades and backgrounds. And Lord, in the church, God, your wisdom in the church extends to bringing all of these people together. Extends to showing off to the world the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That it can reconcile us to God and to one another. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us near to yourself and that you have made it possible for us to be brought near to one another. Lord, would you give us a burden for stepping into this blood-bought reality? God, would you give us eyes to see how we can be participants in being this church for all people? Grant us a boldness to be participants. Grant us a grace for when we will inevitably get this wrong, when we will lack sensitivity in some respect, God. We know that your grace can cover over that, Lord. And so we, we just simply ask, God, that you would make us as a church here at Faithful Bible a church for all people, Lord. God, that it would go deeply into our DNA as people, not just being website values, Lord, but truly values that are woven into the fabric of who we are, Lord, that we will be a people who see that the single red door has swung open for us, and if for us, then for all people. We thank you, Father, for the cross. We thank you for bringing us to yourself, for bringing us to one another. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.